Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music thinkers, and we are the dreamers of dreamers. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think, don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, we did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Save us And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, well, it didn't happen here the office. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? Fellow Americans, it's time to speak out. They're looking for help. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Yes, we can. And when we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. children were saved. Their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public Access America. Make a stand. I know I did. Thank you very much. And may God bless America. It is my great pleasure to welcome everyone to Sanders Theater for our opening event of this bicentennial celebration. Mr. Chief Justice, Justice Kennedy, Justice Breyer, Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, and Justice Souter, President Faust, Dean Manning, faculty colleagues, alums, current students, with a special shout out, of course, to Section 5. <laughs> 200 years is indeed a long time by any measure. Here are a few that underscore its length. When Harvard Law School was founded, the President of the United States was James Monroe, having just succeeded James Madison a few months before. The Chief Justice was John Marshall. Henry Clay was the Speaker of the House, presiding over the 14th Congress, which did not meet in the Capitol because the British had burned it into a ruin in 1814. There were only 19 states in the United States. Indiana was the far west. Abraham Lincoln and Charles Darwin 
were both eight years old, and neither Thomas Edison nor Alexander Graham Bell had been born. In 1817, Harvard Law School was not the only radical experiment. So too was the United States, including its constitution and the aspirations of its framers for a more just society. When in 1817, Harvard Law School opens its doors, actually just a few hundred yards away from this beautiful spot here in Sanders Theater, it boasted six students and two faculty. Approximately 59,998 graduates later, and I counted, there are at Harvard Law School just shy of 2,000 students in attendance from 76 nations, including 1,700 JD students. There are more than 100 full-time tenure, tenure-track faculty joined by professors from practice, clinical faculty, teaching fellows, lecturers, and visiting professors, more than 300 teaching faculty overall, offering each year more than 550 different courses. While much has changed, one fact happily has not. In 1829, one justice on the Supreme Court served simultaneously on the Harvard Law School faculty, Justice Joseph Story, who taught five courses here. Today, too, we can proudly claim one justice on our faculty, our former colleague and spectacular former dean, Justice Elena Kagan. who offers a course each fall. Of course, if others are interested, I expect we can make it happen. <laughs> it is now my privilege and great pleasure to introduce another historic figure, not only a teacher and brilliant scholar of history, but someone who herself made history. The most wonderful, the most extraordinary, 28th president of Harvard University, Drew Faust. Thank you, Richard, and thank you for all the work that has gone into planning this extraordinary day and this extraordinary bicentennial. What a pleasure it is to mark Harvard Law School's 200th year. Thank you all for this deeply inspiring and meaningful celebration. Now, as I look out on this distinguished gathering, it is hard to picture an afternoon two centuries ago when Harvard Law School was that bold new experiment with the grand total of three rooms, two professors, and six students. Or to imagine that 10 years later, that experiment had yielded one remaining faculty member <laughs> and a single student. The direction was not encouraging. But things got better, sometimes in unforeseeable ways. A few weeks ago, we launched this bicentennial celebration by memorializing some 60 enslaved laborers whose work enabled the founding donation for the first Harvard Law professorship. Who among them could have pictured abolitionist Charles Sumner, class of 1834, or Barack Obama, class of 1991? 
and who in 1944 could have predicted that the same institution that denied admission to the brilliant Pauli Murray, not because she was black, but because she was female, would in 2017 elect a female and African-American law review president and the law review's first female majority. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. said it is never easy to be a stronghold of ideals, to keep the faith that sets us to an endless task, especially in the law where, as he put it, we may wear our hearts out after the unattainable. Yet from its earliest days, Harvard Law School was impelled by a new idea of what the law could be. Not simply a craft, but a broadly and deeply educated profession. When Chief Justice Story arrived in 1829 to rescue the young law school, he told his students that the perfect lawyer must make himself familiar with every subject of study. He must search the human heart. Of course, they're all he's at this point. Explore every emotion from the sources of sympathy and benevolence to the cunning arts of the hypocrite. He must understand history and literature and policy and religion and nature. Nothing was irrelevant. Over time, Story told his students, the lawyer would come to know humanity as it is. And while learning to trust men less, a lawyer might also learn to love men more and become, and I quote him again, more wise, more candid, more forgiving, more disinterested. This last quality especially animates Harvard Law School. Disinterested to justice story, of course, did not mean indifferent or lacking in passion, quite the opposite. Disinterestedness is the quality that allows us to engage fully, to argue forcefully, and listen generously without taking offense, to come alive through the clash of ideas and find friendship and even common purpose over divergent views. The law teaches us how to disagree. As Justice Scalia often commented, if you take it personally, you're in the wrong line of work. Or as Chief Justice Roberts quipped in a unanimous Supreme Court decision, FCC versus AT&T, I hope AT&T doesn't take this personally. <laughs> that line, that line, the closing sentence of a 12-page opinion on why corporations as persons nonetheless cannot take things personally. That line is further evidence that Harvard produces not only the greatest number of Supreme Court justices, but the most thoroughly entertaining ones. <laughs> now, if the law represents a disinterested intellectual search for solutions to complex problems, it is also a moral quest to promote equality, expose corruption, advance fairness, preserve liberty, check the arrogance of power, and defend unalienable rights.
Today, we celebrate that public spirit and its legacy. Harvard Law School is unsurpassed in educating leaders in the highest echelons of public life across the United States and around the world. It has trained heads of states, legislators, business leaders, educators, not to mention its share of generals, novelists, spies, artists, producers, musicians, and Olympians. And that in addition to educating six sitting US Supreme Court justices, so many of whom are here with us today. We celebrate an institution, not only for its preeminence, but as a powerful force for change. The place where Louis Brandeis shaped a constitutional right to privacy, where Charles Hamilton Houston prepared to do battle against racial segregation, and where a whole host of people beginning in the 1980s helped to lay the groundwork for what is now a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. We celebrate a remarkable faculty that over the course of two centuries has dominated American legal literature and developed whole new forms of legal education. A faculty that takes on society's most confounding legal and moral challenges and leads and inspires students in 31 clinical programs from criminal justice to cyber law. And we celebrate the students who master their coursework while running influential journals and contributing hundreds of thousands of hours of pro bono work each year. They help low-income clients close to home and around the world in the nation's oldest student-run legal aid bureau. They defend human rights and advocate for tenants and refugees, students and religious minorities and thousands of returning veterans. They fight for economic justice and humanitarian disarmament, including a nuclear weapons ban with a partner organization that has just won the Nobel Peace Prize. No school can accomplish all this without great leadership. The former deans here with us today, Deans Clark and Kagan and Minow, are a testament to a remarkable succession and I want especially to thank Martha Minow, who just last June completed eight years of outstanding service that brought Harvard Law School. There she is. Martha's deanship brought the law school into its 200th year, a stronger, more diverse, and more public-spirited place. Which brings me to the dean who is now leading Harvard Law School into its next 200 years, John Manning. As I'm sure you know by now, Dean Manning exudes a warmth and kindness that might even soften the veneer of Professor Kingsfield. He often beams as if on the verge of discovery or delight. An eminent scholar, he's known for not taking himself too seriously. He recently told an entering class of 2020 that when he was a 1L and a 3L asked a group of new students if they wanted to become litigators, he sat there wondering what a litigator was. Beyond his openness and his magnetic enthusiasm for the law, he's a great collaborator, 
as a teacher who's encouraging, eager to be challenged, striding the length and breadth of the classroom to involve everyone. In his ability to connect the diverse voices so vital to advancing the law. In his commitment to innovative teaching and a wide range of perspectives and methods. I cannot imagine in a fractious and often frightening world a more timely leader in the law. But before I give you Dean Manning, I'd like to make one final observation. When Justice Holmes was in his 80s and still an associate justice on the Supreme Court, he commented in a letter to a friend that age is relative. 90, he wrote, was old, but at age 87, he avowed that he was only nearly old. <laughs> now, a law school, we know, perhaps can't take things personally any more than can a corporation. But on this auspicious anniversary, the notion of being nearly old would seem a useful perspective. As novelist Rachel Cusk recently put it, I don't feel I'm getting older, I'm getting closer. Let us celebrate Harvard Law School, not for getting older, but for getting closer. Closer to reason, closer to justice. Aspirations of the law, that are among civilization's most precious gifts. Thank you very much. Thank you, President Faust. Thank you for your unwavering support of our law school, and thank you for all that you've done over the past 11 years to make us one Harvard, to make this university intellectually livelier, more entrepreneurial, more inclusive, and even more exceptional than it was. That was a very tall order, and you've done splendidly, and we're very, very grateful, so thank you. I also want to acknowledge and thank my dear friends and predecessors, Dean Clark, Dean, <laughs> Dean, uh, I, guess, I guess now we're, we're supposed to call her Justice Kagan. <laughs> and my dear friend, Dean Minow, All of them did amazing work to make a great law school even better. And let me say a special thanks to Dean Minow, Professor Lazarus, Nancy Bacha, and all of the members of the Bicentennial Committee and the Bicentennial staff for, for planning a truly splendid Bicentennial celebration. So thanks, thanks to all of you. Now, I want to say something at the outset, which is I am acutely aware of the fact that I am all that is standing between you 
and the Chief Justice of the United States, and five other alumni who also happen to be Supreme Court justices. So I will be brief. I'm just going to take a moment here to talk about the alma mater. Now, I don't like to brag, but I do love this law school. And if there's ever a moment when it's okay to wear the crimson pride, this is it on our bicentennial, our 200th birthday. In fact, in a funny way, I think it's especially important to indulge that impulse in this crowd, because if you've been associated with Harvard Law School long enough, it's very easy to take for granted just how exceptional this place is. So perhaps you've noticed that we have here in the audience six Supreme Court justices who graduated from the Harvard Law School. What you may not know is that more than one in every six people who ever sat on the Supreme Court attended Harvard Law School. And that includes some folks named Holmes and Brandeis and Frankfurter. Now add to that roughly one out of every eight attorneys general and about one in seven solicitors general. And remember for that about the first hundred years, these folks didn't go, even go to law school. And so that number is even more impressive. And then throw in for good measure, countless cabinet officers, senators, representatives, governors, mayors, diplomats, judges on state and federal courts. And you may want to remember also a couple of presidents and a first lady, and that's just the United States. Add to them the heads of state, ministers of justice, judges, legislators throughout the entire world, and then there are the great innovators here and around the globe in private practice, public interest, entrepreneurship, finance, tech, nonprofits, education, and even the arts. Our alumni are leaders in area after area, field after field, year after year, and now we can say century after century. And then don't forget the many ways in which this law school has contributed to the sum total of human knowledge. Don't forget the very, very big ideas that have been generated here. If you count for our graduates and our faculty, Harvard has played a pioneering role in little things like the idea of judicial restraint, the field of federal courts, the legal process movement, critical legal studies, even modern textualism. <laughs> that was not supposed to be a laugh line. <laughs> What's so cool about all of this is that if you step back, you'll quickly see that Harvard lawyers are often the leading voice on all sides of the important issues that the society and the world face. 
This is true, by the way, in scholarly debates, in judicial debates, and sometimes even in presidential debates. If you just think about this century alone, our graduates have been on the tickets of not only the Democratic and Republican parties, but also the Green Party. And if you're willing to count vice presidential nominees, and I think we should, the Libertarian Party too. <laughs> you really just gotta love it, right? So, so how do you explain all this? So one possibility is this. Maybe because of the history and tradition of this place, our students, our faculty, and our staff feel that sense of mission. I know that our students come here with very high expectations of themselves. They're ambitious in the very best sense. It's in the air as soon as they get here. They want to do something big and important with their lives. So they think deeper, they read more, they stretch themselves, they take risks, they just plain work harder. On any given Saturday night, you will still see the reading room in Langdell full of our students. Our students want to change the world. They want to pursue the best ideals of law and of justice. And that's what, we, what they do. Okay, here's maybe a second factor. Harvard has done something really improbable. For many, many, many years, it has been able to be very grand in scope, truly excellent, and really diverse along many, many dimensions. As Dean Kagan used to say, I think to the chagrin of Bostonians, Harvard is the New York City of law schools. <laughs> A lot of New Yorkers here today, okay. <laughs> and it's true. If you come here, you'll find every subject, approach, methodology, ideology, and perspective you are sure to find really smart, really committed people who disagree with you, who look at the world differently from you, and who challenge your assumptions about everything. Our entire profession is based on the idea that hearing all sides, that confronting the very best arguments against you will make you a better lawyer and will bring us all closer to truth and knowledge and understanding. And for that reason, there is no better place on earth than Harvard Law School to learn to be a great lawyer and a great leader. Now, now I promised to be brief, and so I'll close here and I want to close on a personal note. The reason I love Harvard Law School, really love it, is I bet the same reason that many of you do. 
I was the first in my immediate family to graduate from college and the first to go to law school. And Harvard Law School has enabled me to live dreams that neither my parents nor their parents nor theirs ever could even have imagined. And that is something very special that this law school does for our students year in and year out, generation after generation. And it is our job, our obligation, our duty in the next century to make sure that that continues. May it always be so. And now, the fun part. <laughs> I'm going to introduce the six justices of the Supreme Court who are present, and I'm going to introduce them by their Harvard Law School class. So we will begin with Harvard Law School class of 1991, Justice Neil Gorsuch. Please come on up. Harvard Law School class of 1986, my friend, and I still think of you as my dean, Justice Elena Kagan. Harvard Law School class of 1966, Justice David Souter. It's okay, Justice Breyer. <laughs> Har 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 I have regained my composure. <laughs> Harvard Law School class of 1964, Justice Stephen Breyer. Harvard Law School class of 1961, Justice Anthony Kennedy. <laughs> and now it is with great pleasure that I introduce my dear friend 
and former boss, whom I've known for many years, who's been a dear, dear friend and a mentor to me. He is a spectacular lawyer and a modest and careful judge. He is Harvard Law School class of 1979, the Chief Justice of the United States, John G. Roberts, Jr. Thank you, President Faust and Dean Manning and Professor Lazarus for welcoming and extending a great, gracious welcome to the Supreme Court of the United States. A minority of my colleagues send their regrets. <laughs> we have come a long way since the sesquicentennial celebration of the founding of the Harvard Law School. At the gathering to commemorate that 150th anniversary, one of the jewels in the school's crown, Judge Henry J. Friendly, introduced another jewel, Justice William Brennan. Justice Brennan was, at that time, the only Harvard graduate on the Supreme Court. Judge Friendly pointed out that fact, noting, quote, while the Harvard Law School has furnished many graduates to the court, it has rarely had many incumbents at any one time. He added, unlike another school which today shall be nameless, Harvard does not need numbers to make her influence felt. Now, I am sure that that remains true today, but why take a chance? <laughs> The Harvard justices who preceded those on this stage, from Joseph Story to Antonin Scalia, have had an oversized influence on the law. Consider the great 20th century Harvard jurists, Holmes, Brandeis, Frankfurter, Learned Hand. I include Hand, even though he did not serve on the Supreme Court, because he should have. <laughs> These great jurists were different in many ways. But when you examine their judicial and extrajudicial writings, two common related themes come to the fore. The central importance of the free exchange of ideas to both democracy and law, and the need for intellectual humility to ensure the exchange is meaningful. First, the free exchange of ideas. It was Holmes who said, we should be eternally vigilant against attempts to check the expression of opinions that we loathe. Brandeis, that public discussion is a political duty. Frankfurter, that truth cannot be pursued in an atmosphere hostile to the endeavor. And Hand, that the mutual confidence on which all else depends can be maintained only by an open mind and a brave reliance on discussion. You could jumble up the quotes and the speakers, few listeners would be the wiser, and none meaningfully misled. Second, humility. That is perhaps not the first word you think about when you're talking about the Harvard Law School. 
But as for intellectual humility, it was Holmes who said that to have doubted one's own first principles is the mark of a civilized man. Brandeis, that one bows to the lessons of experience and the force of better reasoning in the judicial function. Frankfurter, that the indispensable judicial requisite is intellectual humility. And Hand, famously, that the spirit of liberty is the spirit which is not too sure it is right. It is the spirit which seeks to understand the minds of other men and women. Debate and doubt, not doctrine, are what our school at its best teaches. It is also how it teaches, again, at least at its best. What is the Socratic method, after all, but discussion designed to sow doubt in order to develop insight and understanding. It is hard not to believe that the shared educational experience of Holmes, Brandeis, Frankfurter, and Hand, just nearby, contributed significantly to their shared belief in the value of free debate and intellectual humility. I am happy to report that these values characterize the work of the current Supreme Court. We go about our business with a full reservoir of mutual respect, a uniform commitment to discussing the cases in conference in a spirit of collegiality, and sufficient doubt about our own infallibility to make those discussions pertinent to the decision process. It takes restraint to listen rather than speak, to consider rather than dismiss, to follow new wisdom rather than familiar doctrine. But we know from the words presidents of Harvard use in conferring law degrees that wise restraints can make men free. It is reasonable to expect that the Harvard Law School will be around in another 100 years. That will be cause for celebration if the school remains faithful to its core values of debate and doubt. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, please sit. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chief Justice Roberts. So now we come to the question and answer period of our afternoon. And so here's, here's what, how I thought we would do it. Since there are six of you, I think I'm not going to ask all of you to respond to each one of these questions. But I might pose a question and ask one or two of you to respond. And if others of you want to jump in because you find it particularly interesting, enticing to answer this question, please jump in. I'm going to cover sort of three rough areas, and then we're going to have a lightning round. Um, <laughs> and so the three areas are sort of your legal education, and uh, your, uh, then the next is your professional development, uh, and then life on the court, and then the lightning round is, you know what I hope will be fun facts. Okay, so we're, we're going to start, as, as, as we should, um, with question one. So question... Uh, <laughs> 
Good idea. <laughs> so um, here's question one. So there are many 1Ls in the audience and many people who were 1Ls, <laughs> in, in, including all of you. So what was 1L like for you? Did you like it? How did you feel about being called on? Socratic method? Any thoughts? All right, so Justice Kennedy? <laughs> well, uh, law professors say we teach you how to think. Uh, my wife was a third grade teacher. We teach, she teaches people how to think. The law school, law school teaches you to think about ordinary things in a formal way. And after two weeks of contracts, I went down to uh, Cambridge Square and Harvard Square, and it said apples, uh, 10 cents. So I gave the guy a dime and took two apples. And he said, no, no, no. I said, well, it said apples. He said, are you a law school guy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like textualism to me. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Justice Kennedy. Um, Ju Justice Gorsuch, you, you, were, you were most recently a 1L of any of us on the stage. In, in uh, sitting here today brings back memories of the first day of 1L. Um, I don't know whether it's still done, but the dean addressed uh, the first year class in this very room. And it's still done. Still done. And Dean Borenberg at the time, followed by Dean Clark, who served when I was a law school. And I remember that, uh, that day very vividly right now. And it's amazing how quickly the years pass. I was scared to death. <laughs> yeah. and, and how long did that stay with you? I'm, I'm, I'll let you know. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyone else have memories of... One L? I got called on my very first class. I was the first person in my section who was called on by Abe Shays, who raked me over the coals some. And of course, I came out and I thought, oh my gosh, I was terrible, and now everybody knows I'm terrible. But it was the best thing that happened to me because it just got, got it over with quickly, that feeling of like, okay, the worst has happened. And now I can sit back and, 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 and relax a little bit. No, I won't be called on in that class at least for a few days. But mostly just feel as, as though, you know, uh, there, was, there was nothing to dread anymore. And, and were you right? <laughs> <laughs> um, OK, I'm going to move on to the second. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to move on to question two. So I hope, I hope this is not a compound question. Um, was there a professor uh, or a course at Harvard Law School uh, that you particularly loved or that you found particularly inspirational? Justice Breyer? Legal process. I knew it. <laughs> Sachs. I said, Sachs. Uh, uh, Al Sachs. There it is. I mean, uh, people say that. You want to know what a justice of our court thinks? So ask who his professors were. I found in that course, that's the way it is. And was Have it, I changed my mind since? Never. <laughs> was, it, was it the and, course or the professor or both? No, it's the course. And, and it, is, it is the course, the reasoned elaboration on the uh, common law side, the reasonable legislator, a construct uh, on the interpretive side. And there it is. 
I mean, uh, uh, and I have to list as a, as a professor combined with course, Jack Dawson, contracts, great course. Now, Abe Shays was pretty good. He gave me the best question I ever asked in class. You know what it is? <laughs> on the, the last course, day. And you I see what we go through. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my, I, at, in my antitrust class, I think uh, I was teaching, he, I got my, he had his daughter when she, she was seven, and, and uh, Chloe came into the back of the class. It was a pretty big class, and I, so we were preparing for the exam, and you asked you know, some questions. They might be on the exam, they might not, da, da, da. And uh, finally, I said, well, what was, there was a case involving restraints on alienation, I think, from 1782, and I said, what was the year that was decided? And of course, nobody knew. I said, you're not, you're prepared for class, and you don't know what year? That case was decided? My God, that's an easy question. A child of seven could answer that question. Is there a child of seven here? Chloe, I'm a child of seven. <laughs> 1782, and I left the class. That was eight <laughs> <laughs> There we are. There we are. That was law school in those days. I mean, that was a... <laughs> can, can I just say who my favorite professor was? It, was? it was my antitrust professor, because you just heard from him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I had Professor Henry Hart, and he uh, taught at 12 o'clock. We called it darkness at noon. <laughs> and he, he, was a, he was a very popular professor, but very difficult. He'd say, and now that principle, no, that can't be. And we sit waiting. <laughs> Mr. Chief Justice? Uh, well, uh, contracts was my favorite course uh, because Phil Arita taught it. Uh, and he was my favorite professor. He was a master of the Socratic method, not in the way, you know, the paper chase, sort of grilling students or embarrassing them, but he really would engage you, uh, uh, you know, firmly, uh, not gently, but uh, uh, for the purpose of getting information out, and he would bring the whole class into it. It wasn't picking on one person for the whole day, but it was jumping around, and it was uh, invigorating. So I think... Uh, uh, he was a master of that craft, and it was not an easy craft to master. Mm -hmm. Justice Souter? I guess I, I would give a two-part answer. Uh, the, the, the first year, my first year, uh, was also the first year and respectively uh, the, I think, the third year for, for two absolutely superb teachers who are still teaching. Uh, one was Charles Freed and one was Frank Michaelman. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 we knew what we had with the, with the two of those. Uh, with respect to, the, the reason a two-part question, a two-part answer is that uh, there's a separate category, uh, and that is the, the category of the old-timers. Uh, and the... Um, uh, sort of the stellar old-timer uh, in, in my law school years was Paul Freund. And uh, I, had, I, I had actually taken a course with him in the college, uh, and I, I knew that I wanted to take another course with him. And w one of my great disappointments was that when, the, uh, uh, when I got second year, I did not get in his constitutional law class. 
But um, I had better luck the third year because I got accepted into his, uh, uh, his seminar, the year-long seminar on constitutional litigation. And I did not see it necessarily, or at all for that matter, as sort of a, a presage to the future, but it kind of turned out that way. <laughs> but he was, he was, he was uh, a, a basically a, a source of, of, of general culture, uh, as well as the subjects that he was teaching. Uh, you, I mean, you, you heard as much uh, from, from Wallace Stevens and, and Shakespeare uh, as, as, as you did from, from some judge. And he, he, he used to teach by, by telling the most wonderful stories. And when, when you brought that question up, I thought, gee, I'd like to, can I tell one of the stories? Of course. It's not, it's not too long. But uh, I, I don't remember what the occasion for this was in, in the seminar, but he told a story about William Howard Taft. And uh, he reminded us or told us that uh, between the time that Taft was, was president and the time that he became Chief Justice of the United States, um, he, he taught uh, at Yale Law School. And uh, Taft was a, was, a, was a great lover of college football. And whenever there was a, the Yale was playing in New Haven, he was there, he had a season ticket, or actually more, and uh, Mrs. Taft didn't share his, his pleasure, but he went alone. But he, at that time, I think weighed 340 pounds, and he couldn't fit into a seat. So because he, he was a, a fair man, he bought two tickets, because uh, he was occupying two seats. And uh, <coughs> Mr. Freund uh, told the story of Taft's arrival for the game one day in New Haven, and he got to his, uh, his, his section and he handed the two tickets to the student usher and, and the usher was perplexed and he said, but you, you've given me two tickets, sir. And he was looking around and, and uh, Taft said, well, yes, that's, that's right. He said, the reason is that I, in fact, occupy two seats and I think it's only fair that I should pay for them. And the usher said, but sir, these are on opposite sides of the aisle. <laughs> Uh, and at, at, at that point, you know, Paul Freund took over and he said, he said I would like to think uh, that with, with, uh, with Chief Justice Taft's um, uh, great negotiating ability that he would have resolved the problem by turning first to his neighbor on the right and convincing him to use the left-handed uh, seat during the first half and uh, during the halftime break that he would have turned to his neighbor on the left and persuaded him to occupy the seat on the right. And he said, that way, you see, everyone could see the game and each one would see it from a different perspective. <laughs> and he said, difference in perspective and the capacity to appreciate it is very important. <laughs> so, so apart from the fact that you're all uh, Supreme Court justices, um, you've had very interesting careers. So um, many of you were circuit judges. 
One of you was a state Supreme Court justice. Um, several of you worked in the Justice Department. A couple of you worked in the White House. Several of you worked in private practice. One of you was chief counsel of a Senate committee. Um, lots and lots of different kinds of uh, experience. So what was the professional experience that you had that best prepared you for the Supreme Court? Justice Breyer? I don't know that this prepares you for the Supreme Court, mm. but I think the thing that does, nothing prepares you for the Supreme Court. Harry, Harry Blackman said, it's in a, you're going to find this an unusual assignment. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the, the uh, uh, thing that I thought in life, when I worked for Senator Kennedy, in professional life, uh, I learned a lot from him. And I'd say the thing that I, sticks most is you often have a choice in life. Do you want the credit or do you want the result? And he would say, credit is a weapon. And listen. And when you see somebody saying something that you can use, listen. What a good idea you have. And then you get together. And then something happens. And if it's good, there's plenty of credit to go around. And if it's bad, who wants it? Okay, that's what he said. And therefore, it was the other senator that he pushed out to the newspaper. That's right. And therefore, he got the result. And I think whatever your profession, whatever your profession, if you're going to work with other people, uh, that was something I learned and I thought was valuable in whatever my future career was. Thank you. Great. Justice Kagan? Uh, we used to be called attorneys and counselors at law. When we graduated from the bar, we shook our, each other's hand and said, the counselor, counselor, which sounds maybe like youthful pomposity, but um, I was a solo practitioner, had people that had never been to an attorney before, did some criminal work, and it was fascinating to me uh, how important the counseling function was. I still miss it, I could still. And it, it taught me that behind all these cases, they're, they're a real, real person. And um, it, it, it seems to me it's very, very important uh, for us to remember, you know, all those law books, Holmes said that the, the, the law books are the story of our moral life. Uh, and behind every one of those cases, there, there's, a, there's a real person. My office was not far from the Capitol Park in Sacramento, one of the most beautiful parks in the country. And sometimes clients would come and the question is, you know, what, what would we do with the, with a criminal charge or uh, with, the, with the business problem? And we'd go through it and as he'd say, what, what should I do? I'd say, take a walk in the park. Come back a half hour later and, and tell me what to do. And uh, a few years ago, back in Sacramento, somebody still came up to me. I said, I still remember that walk in the park. Uh, so we have to remember that the law relates, relates to people, and that's, that's, it seems to me, what helps me think about the law. Justice Kagan, what, did, what was your... Um, well, I guess the job I had that most obviously prepared me uh, for the court was the job I had right before the court, which was Solicitor General, because all that the Solicitor General does is think about the court. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, you know, the court's procedures, the court's docket, the way the court makes decisions, who's on the court, how they think, how they interact. Um, so sometimes, you know, it did seem as though all you did as Solicitor General was try to figure out how to persuade the nine justices of the court, and, and now I think about how to persuade eight justices of the court. <laughs> that seems... You're, 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 you're wasting four. <laughs> <laughs> but in a less obvious way, I will say that I think that the thing that I think about most in terms of my own uh, professional background is actually teaching. Not deaning, not scholarship, but teaching. Because a lot of what we do when we sit down and we craft opinions, what we're trying to do is explain really complicated things to people who are interested, uh, who want to understand them, but don't, you know, but don't necessarily have that knowledge right then and there. And, and these are really complicated concepts often. And how do you explain something to people who want to learn about it, who want to understand why the court is doing what it's doing, I think it's a lot like what I used to do when I would think about preparing for a class. You know, I would come into my office and I would think there are going to be a hundred students sitting out there and they're smart and they're eager and they're interested, but they don't know a whole lot. And how do I explain all these complicated things to them? And, and um, the, the, what, what I learned when I tried to do that at Harvard was also what I try to do on the court when I sit down and write. We, we write in order to inspire allegiance to the result. Chief Justice Roberts? Um, arguing in the, in the court, um, not so much for the Solicitor General's office, but for private clients. Um, I argued about half of my cases in, in, uh, for the government, half for private clients. And I was very proud to argue for the government, in essence, to stand up in the Supreme Court and say, I speak for my country. But it was when I was representing a private party um, that, frankly, I truly came to understand what the rule of law was. Because to my right, where the Solicitor General always was, was the representative of the most powerful force in the world, the government of the United States. And I had a client, uh, whether it was an individual, an association, a company, and the, that most powerful force in the world wanted to do something to my client. And all I had to do was convince five lawyers that the government did not have the right to do that, and I won. And it just struck me that that is amazing, that being able to convince five lawyers and the most powerful force in the world would receive. And that, that's where I got a real sense of what people mean when they talk about the rule of law. Justice Gorsuch, you spent a fair bit of time in private practice. What was the sort of what was the most influential pre-court piece sure. of your career? Well, well can I can I Anything. go a little sideways? Sure. I want to associate myself with Justice Souter in recognizing Professor Freed as, as a major influence. I, I don't know where he is. But. He was a generous teacher, a demanding one, full of stories of public service, inspiring in that, in that way, uh, and also um, a, a, a beautiful philosopher. His book, Right and Wrong, stands the test of time for me. I, I, I assigned it 
every year to my students in ethics at, at the University of Colorado. So a lawyer is friend that captures the spirit of our profession to me as well as anything I've ever read. Okay. So uh, to answer your question, um, <laughs> uh, it's very hard for me to isolate any one portion of my career, whether it's having been an appellate judge for 10 years, which is a little bit like this job. Though, as Justice Breyer said, this is a most unusual assignment. Um, private practice, very important too. Uh, Department of Justice, all of those things. But if I were to single out one thing, there's a friend of mine who teaches at Oklahoma City University. He's the dean there, and he's a professional responsibility scholar as well. And he uh, did a study and found that most young people, everything you learn is great in law school, and it's very important. But we often imprint very heavily and get our professional sense of responsibility from the first boss we have. Right? And we take on a lot of what we learn. And in that, I am the luckiest man I know. Luckiest man I know. Not only did I have Byron White, I had Anthony Kennedy. He is rightly regarded as a model of judicial temperament and civility in our profession in a time when we need both. And, uh, I am very, very lucky to have started there. So that's my answer to your question. That's a good answer. You, you didn't always do what I told you to do when you're my clerk. You better start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> now, right. now, Justice Souter, you, you are... <laughs> You, you are the um, only member of the panel who served as a state Supreme Court justice. Do you think your service on a state court shaped the way you think about your, thought about, have thought about your role as a federal judge, as a Supreme Court justice? Um, I, I think the, the answer is yes, but not probably in the sense that you had in mind. Uh, I think the most valuable experience that I had as a, uh, a state court justice, and for that matter, the most, maybe the most valuable experience preparatory to being on the, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, was the five years that I, I spent uh, as a state trial judge. And um, you, as, as a judge, you have a capacity to learn um, not only about the the, the parties in a case, uh, but the, uh, the jurors in a case in a way that a, a trial lawyer uh, simply doesn't have. Uh, uh, and um, one of the things, I'll just stick to, to one point, one of the things that I learned uh, in the course of those five years um, was the inestimable moral value of the jurors uh, judged in the way they went about their, their work. Uh, I, can, I can remember being at, at bar meetings and um, uh, a lawyer would say, uh, apropos of criminal cases, well, you know, you say beyond reasonable doubt, but they're going to do what they're going to do. Uh, and um, I, I found out that that was wrong. 
Uh, and uh, I, one, of the, one of the things that I did invariably, uh, with only one or two exceptions in five years, was to talk to the jurors after they had decided a case. And I wouldn't tell them whether I agreed with them or not, uh, but I would answer questions from them, and I would learn a lot in the course of doing that. And uh, I, can, I can remember a number of times in which I would go into that jury room after the jurors had acquitted someone in a criminal case, and someone would, uh, would say, uh, hey, don't get us wrong, Judge. Uh, we think he did it, but beyond a reasonable doubt, nah. Um, they, they took their jobs very seriously. Uh, and I also had experience um, as with, with, with a grand jury that absolutely refused to indict someone who was absolutely guilty because they believed there was some kind of a political hanky-panky going on between the state attorney general and the county prosecutor, and they didn't know what it was, but they were not going to put somebody uh, in the jeopardy of a criminal case um, uh, if, if, if there was something they should know, but they didn't. And it was, it was the, both the independence of the jurors and their, their, their truly punctilious conscientiousness to follow the instructions uh, that kept me from ever falling into that kind of cynicism that I described. And that, that certainly uh, had, had its effect on, on my judgment in cases that came before me when I was on the Supreme Court. Uh, you may, may remember back during the uh, earlier stages of the war on drugs, one of the, uh, one of the uh, sort of tactics was to try to make every significant possible issue in a drug possession case uh, into a sentencing factor rather than an element that had to be proven. Uh, and ultimately, this issue got, got put before the court. I know perfectly well, because I was conscious of it at the time, that my respect for the conscientiousness of the jury and my recognition that they really did stand between the power of the government um, uh, and, um, uh, and uh, the, the, uh, the, the themselves, uh, the the, uh, the defendant rather uh, that the most important consideration was not to allow anything as a matter of practice to creep in that was going to dilute the value of the guarantee of a jury trial. I wouldn't have been that sensitive without that experience. So what I'm what I'm saying boils down to the fact that. My, my most valuable experiences for purposes of, of uh, my time in the Supreme Court were the experiences uh, uh, in the trenches uh, as a trial judge, seeing how things worked. Thank you. All right, so here's a little bit of an odd question. It's a little counterfactual. If you had not become a lawyer, what do you think you would be doing today. Justice Gorsuch? So I cheated. I looked at these questions before I showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to think about this one for a minute, John. And then it, I have no plan B myself. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> but, but then it came really obvious to me. I just thought, who do I envy? 
I envy fly fishing guides <laughs> and ski instructors. And better yet, somebody who does one in the summer and the other in the winter. And I know people like that. <laughs> and I, I really like their office and their work environment. So, okay, very good. Right. Fly fishing guide. Right. That's excellent. Thank you. <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts? Well, um, I would probably be hounding uh, President Faust to see if I could get a position in the history department. Um, I went to law school because there were no jobs in any history department. Um, and it was only after about near the end of the first year of law school that I decided uh, it might be a better option anyway. But uh, I think studying history. Well, what kind of history? European, modern European history, which is what I spent as much time in college studying as I could. Um, it's not as much fun as fly fishing. And, uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> Justice Kagan? Well, uh, the only problem is Chief, <laughs> Chief Justice, you couldn't get into the president's office because I would be there first <laughs> saying that I, I, I want to teach English literature and or political thought. Justice Kagan. Well, that's so, that's so funny. It's uh, three in a row who say uh, we'd like to be university professors. I, I also um, majored in history, and I would, have, um, I would have been a history professor, I think. That was when I went to law school. It was, should I go to history graduate school? Should I go to law school? Should I go to history graduate school? So same And, and what, tip, what tipped the balance? You know, possibly a little bit of what the Chief Justice said. It seemed a much more practical <laughs> route. <laughs> but I think also a sense that I think maybe, President Faust did OK. <laughs> I think also a sense uh, maybe that, that I would have found, you know, uh, 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 sitting in the archives all day, um, you know, that the, the, there was a sense in which I, I wanted uh, what I did to matter, and uh, to matter in the world, to matter to other people, and 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 law seemed, on the on on the one hand, incredibly intellectually challenging, but also a way to make a difference, uh, which I wasn't sure being a history professor would. Anyone else? I I, I will just add that uh, the. The, the two who wanted to teach history, unfortunately, would have arrived a little late uh, because I would already have gotten the job. <laughs> <laughs> the competition would be very tough. We'd have to <laughs> well, that just leaves you, Justice Breyer. What would you have done? I was thinking I knew what I wanted to do when I was seven years old. What I wanted to do is uh, I wanted to be a baseball player in the summer and drive a garbage truck in the winter. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. Yeah, most of us wanted to be teachers. Uh, we all had. I mean, I, I had. You know, people in these other departments saying, "Go to law school. Go to law school." And that was uh, anyway. <laughs> all right. Here is a two-part question. You may answer. Obviously, since you're Supreme Court justices, either, both, or neither. Um, but uh, and they and they may be the same question. They may be the same answer, or they may be different answers. So now I'll ask. So the first part is, who is the justice with whom you never served, whom you particularly or most admire? 
And who is, the, this is the second part of this, and it may be different. And who is the justice with whom you never served, with whom you'd most want to have dinner? Well, that's, that's easy. Justice Breyer, you seem... First answer is Brandeis. Practical. Interested in the facts. Wants to know the facts of the situation. Understands the principle. Writes clearly. And uh, has decent values. And uh, I, I, I admire what he did. Absolutely. Brandeis. Brand Second question. Clearly Holmes. Holmes had deep culture. He read a lot. He knew all kinds of things. He knew philosophy. He was in that group of the, what it was at the, in Philadelphia, you know, with the Peirce and James and, and, and the others. Uh, and he would be very interesting to talk to on all kinds of subjects. Well, seemed like good choices. And they both went to Harvard. Um, <laughs> uh, Justice Kagan. My first answer is the same. The only, you know what those bobbleheads? The only bobblehead I have in my office is Justice Brandeis. <laughs> so uh, uh, in addition to everything that Justice Breyer just said, I'll say that Justice Brandeis had, I think, this uh, incredible sense of history of our nation and brought that to bear in the way he thought about law. Um, but the person I would like to go to dinner with, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I never served with him, but I, 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 I did spend a good deal of time with him was uh, Justice Marshall, mm. who is oh, yeah. the greatest storyteller I've ever met in my life, the greatest raconteur I've ever met in my life. Um, if you're going to have dinner with one person who's ever served on the Supreme Court, take TM. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thur Thurgood had these stories, and when a justice retires, we have a dinner for them. And Thurgood got up to tell a story. And the story was that he'd been, uh, was counsel in a capital case uh, and was going to, in those days, they could argue an hour per side. And the attorney that hired him um, was an attorney from Alabama. And that attorney, who was the, the boss, said that he was going to argue the first part of the case and, and Thurgood the second. So, uh, they sat down at the council table, and the case was called, and Hugo Black stands up and stalks out of the room, which is our polite way of saying you're recused. And um, uh, so the argument went on, and at the end of the argument, the attorney said, now I don't know why Hugo did that, because he's my cousin. <laughs> the, the, the case, a capital conviction was affirmed four to four equally divided court. Uh, Thurgood got to work uh, and spent two years and got the sentence commuted. But we had never heard that story. None of us had, he, he was the, uh, the, 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 the great raconteur, a, a, a marvelous man. And as you know, we were very, very close. And the, the justice with whom you? Oh, oh, the, oh uh, I, I would want, want to um, meet uh, John, John Marshall, he had a, a vision of, of, of a country uh, that would be unified uh, by this magnificent constitution, a constitution uh, that can endure uh, and that must endure, endure for ages. 
I, we share something in common in that both of us told the presidents we'd rather practice law than serve on the court. <laughs> uh, but but I, I uh, uh, would, would, would want to see John Marshall. Chief? Well, uh, Justice Kennedy has stolen a little of my thunder. It would have to be uh, John Marshall. It, you know, the, his main biography, the biographer's the subtitle is Definer of a Nation, which is exactly mm. what he was. Uh, he is certainly the most significant political figure in our history who was not president. Um, his decisions really did shape what the Constitution was going to mean uh, in practice. He had a mind that could see the, 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 all of the bounds of the problem at once and then sort through it. He was a brilliant writer. People don't realize that. If you pick up Marbury versus Madison, it doesn't read like the late 18th century. There's no whereas is in there or heretofore. You can read it. An intelligent layperson can read it. And he was an extraordinary uh, individual. His ability to exercise influence over the other justices who were living in the same townhouse through the force of his personality and the persuasiveness of his reasoning was extraordinary. So is it the same answer for both dinner and? No, 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 dinner is easy. But he was, Marshall <laughs> was, was uh, also, I think it's correct, the largest individual importer of Madeira in the colonies <laughs> at that time. And he served a lot of it. And uh, anyway, dinner's easy. David has touched on it. You'd want to have dinner with William Howard Taft. Not only, not only, he's the only person, of course, President and Chief Justice, he's extraordinarily underrated because he is fat. And you think he can't really be a brilliant uh, public servant, and you'd know you'd get a lot of food and it would be good. Justice Souter? Well, I, I'm going to become part of the trend here for saying, let's have fun at dinner and, instead of, you know, getting these serious types. And uh, I, I'm not sure that you can improve on, on Holmes as a, as a dinner companion, uh, but uh, a, a later example that I think would be pretty safe for, for a, a, a good bang-up dinner would have been Robert Jackson. Mm. Uh, I mean, he had the most marvelous sense of humor. He wrote the greatest opinion in English or American history uh, on the subject of why he had changed his mind. Um, I changed my mind once on uh, nude dancing, and I borrowed liberally from, from his opinion on it. <laughs> but he... <laughs> Keep on, David. Keep yeah. on. <laughs> I, I don't remember, David, which direction. <laughs> I went in favor of it, of yeah. course. <laughs> but uh, and let's let's not end with that. Uh, <laughs> Remember, as an, as an example of Jackson's wit, he, uh, <laughs> he, was, he was Toastmaster, I think, at a uh, testimonial dinner uh, honoring both Learned Hand and his cousin Augustus Hand. Uh, and uh, he, he paid great tribute to, to Learned Hand's craftsmanship as a, as a writer and to Augustus Hand's uh, uh, great wisdom and common sense uh, on matters of substance, and he ended the toast with, quote, learned and follow Gus. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
that's 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 the kind of have guy to have at the dinner table. Thank you, Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Justice Souter has stolen part of my thunder. I would I would pick Robert Jackson instantly um, as someone I would have both loved to have served with and had dinner with. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah here, remarkable. It, it didn't graduate from the Harvard Law School um, or really any. Law school, right? I mean, then, it, then it's okay. And that's okay. <laughs> practice, practice for a number of years in upstate New York, and then um, serves in every important role in uh, the administration, uh, and then becomes a judge, and then often rules against the administration he just left as attorney general, uh, and recognize the difference in function between judge and advocate um, and spoke about that beautifully as he did what it means to be a, uh, an official of the Department of Justice, that beautiful speech. Uh, and then of course Nuremberg. I mean, uh, 20th century life um, as a judge, uh, I, I just think it was just such a pity he, his time was cut short. Um, and then I'll throw in another one because I'd agree with so many others that have been mentioned, but maybe one that hasn't been mentioned was Joseph Story. Um, really a scholar of the Constitution, someone who did do it all, was a scholar and a thoughtful judge. And the quote that we heard from uh, the president uh, from his work um, gives you a sense of the man's heart and mind, um, and I, I just very admirable, capable of both being carefully analytical, but also understanding the, the consequence and the weight of his role. Thank you, those are great answers. Um, and I'm going to give away one of the amazing things about being dean of Harvard Law School, is you sit in this office and there are two desks in the office. And one of them is Justice Story's desk. Right. And the other is a, is a stand-up writing desk, which is Justice Holmes's desk. Well, we now call it the Story Kagan desk, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, if that doesn't give you a sense of responsibility and a sense of the importance of this institution and what it does in the world, I don't know anything that would. Thank you, Justice Kagan. Um, all right, I'm gonna ask a couple of questions about your work now. So, here's one. What qualities uh, make for a great lawyer, either before your court or anywhere? Second is, um, what are the most common avoidable mistakes that lawyers make in briefs and oral arguments. <coughs> Justice Kagan, you got a, you've been on you're a teacher, a solicitor general, a justice. I think there's no one set of qualities that makes for a great lawyer because I think there's so many different kinds of lawyers in the world. And I think the, the, the qualities that make somebody a, a, a great lawyer in our court are very different from those that make somebody a great trial lawyer or a great negotiator. So, um, so I think that one is all specific to the situation. Um, uh, what makes for a great Supreme Court advocate, I'm going to say the Chief Justice should tell you that because he was one of the greatest that ever lived. But, uh, but I think it's um, the ability to uh, uh, really engage in a conversation 
with the court not to ever run away from questions, to understand that the hard questions that they're asking you are the ones that you have to answer to, uh, to prevail, um, to be respectful, but, but also to approach the court as an equal. Um, you're explaining things to them. You probably understand the case more deeply at that point than, than they do to have confidence in yourself. Um, uh, uh, but always, always, always to listen to what the judges are asking and to, and to go with that, not to give any kind of, you know, I have 10 points in my pocket that I need to get to, but to listen really carefully to the bench and where it's at um, uh, because that's who you need to convince. Does that sound right, Chief Justice Roberts? Well, Justice Kagan, one of the greatest deans that has ever lived. Uh, <laughs> uh, I agree with uh, pretty much everything she said. I used to uh, try to sum it up in saying that the lawyer must be uh, dispassionate. And I think this is true not only in arguing before the court, but in negotiation. Uh, I don't know as much about trials. In other words, you have to... Uh, uh, have the judge think that you are not just, uh, you know, pounding away zealously for your client. Um, and there are ways to do that. Um, one is that you recognize the weaknesses in your case. Um, uh, when the judge or justice says, well, what about this case? You know, don't pretend that it's not bad for you. You can say, well, that's not, you know, that's not our favorite case, and mm -hmm. here's why. But, but you go on to explain. So the judge feels that you're part of a... a, a in, this, in, in the same role to some extent with her in the sense of trying to figure out the case. Um, and once you can establish that relationship, you can be a much more effective advocate. So it sounds like, as if listening, candor, answering questions all work very well. And anybody have a different view? <laughs> Is that the, I mean, is that what you all look for? I've not, I've not been really a practicing lawyer except for a couple of years in the Justice Department. Uh, but over time, I've met many lawyers, and uh, I admire quite a few. And the qualities I admire are things that you brought out. You're no stronger than your weakest argument. Not your strongest. But the thing I think I admire, Lloyd Cutler and others who have that, and I heard it put the Bill Coleman. Uh, it was uh, a quality that uh, actually Drew Faust mentioned a certain disinterestedness. Hmm. You're for your client, but not too much. And that's right, you step back a little. And those I admire particularly, they've spent quite a, some of their career anyway in public service, not entirely private. You're part of the community, and there's so many ways to be part of the community. So I, I like those dollar a year, used to be men, now women too. Uh, or on the library board, or whatever. But the lawyer is part of a community. The lawyer is representing his client well. But remember, that disinterested, that's a good word. And you're no stronger than your weaker ar weakest argument. Make sure you understand that. And so, so it sounds like an issue of trust, that the lawyer needs to build trust. Mm -hmm. Justice Gorsuch, what do you say? Um, well, I, I was uh, in practice predominantly a trial lawyer, and um, I, I think I'll, um, one thing that every, everything that's been said remains true for the trial um, level as well. 
but two other things I, I might add to the mix. One is just plain old hard work. Um, it's, it's tough to be a lawyer today. And uh, teaching young people, uh, I, those nights in Langdell, they, they pay off. Um, they're worth it. Uh, to know the law, to be able to serve your client well, requires a certain irreducible amount of hard work. Um, and the other is ethics, um, lawyer as friend. Uh, what does it mean to be a friend um, to your client? It means giving everything you've got without giving up yourself either and what's essential to you. Uh, so your integrity matters a very great deal in the process. Thank you. Anyone else want to? Well, when uh, sometimes people at a social occasion say, does oral argument make a difference? And they stand back like they've asked you a trick question. <laughs> <laughs> because if you say no, you're engaging in a charade. And if you say yes, you're being pushed around by a bunch of lawyers. But uh, of, of, course, of course it makes a difference. And as my colleagues have indicated, um, we are there uh, in, in order to make up our minds, and this is, and as Justice Kagan and Justice Roberts indicated, a good oral argument, if sometimes we behave well, sometimes we don't, a good, a, a good oral argument is a conversation that justices are having among themselves that the attorney can enter into. And I agree with the Just, Justice Kagan. You really want to help the judge and try to enter the justice and, and enter into his or her, her mind because that, that justice is trying to decide uh, how best uh, to understand your argument. Thank you. Can I add one thing? Of course. At a detail. <clears throat> um, uh, as, as several people have said, starting with, uh, with Justice Kagan, you know, listen to what the court is saying and, and try, to, try to respond to what is really on the court's mind. And the, the, the one point of detail that, uh, that, uh, that, that I might add to uh, actually to the Chief Justice's follow-up uh, is that a very good way to do that, which um, not that many lawyers, I think, practice, uh, is, to, is to sort of structure your argument by going back to first-year procedure uh, remember uh, the, if, if it, I don't know whether it's still taught this way, but it was when, when I was first year. Um, you know, we learned the, um, the, the old, something about the old forms of action and the old formal pleas, one of which was a plea in confession and avoidance. And you say, yeah, everything that they allege is true, but, uh, but it does not amount to an actionable um, violation or whatnot. And the, 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 the master of responding to what is really on the judge's mind, to what the judge clearly uh, indicates is, 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 the, is the stumbling point, uh, the, 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 the master doing that uh, was, was Rex Lee. And I, I never heard Rex Lee when he was Solicitor General, but after he had uh, resigned from that, he argued several cases when, when I was still on the court. And Rex Lee, I, I don't know whether he did this consciously or not, but it sounded that way when, when you'd see it demonstrated. He was prepared to give a confession and avoidance answer to the most devastating question uh, that a judge could, could ask him. 
And um, uh, he seemed to, 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 to structure his answer in, in that way. And I, I remember one day, um, when, and by the way, when, when I was on the court, I always sat next to Justice Scalia. And I remember one day, I don't remember the case, but I remember one day when Rex Lee was arguing and Justice Scalia asked him uh, the, uh, you know, the ultimate question. Uh, and um, the case was going to be won or lost, at least in Justice Scalia's mind on that. And I happened to, to watch uh, Mr. Lee's face as Justice Scalia was asking the question. And he didn't totally suppress a little flicker of a smile. <laughs> and I remember when Justice Scalia finished, uh, Rex Lee pointed at him with his hand, and he said, you are dead right, Justice Scalia, and I'll tell you why it doesn't make a bit of difference in this case. <laughs> uh, and uh, so if, if, there, if there is one pointer uh, that, that, that I would add to the discussion is, don't forget confession and avoidance. <laughs> it's, a, it's a great way to organize uh, your, uh, uh, your capacity to survive the devastating question. Justice Souter does not re remember the losing lawyer in that case. Pardon me? <laughs> you're, not, you're not remembering the losing lawyer in that case. <laughs> I thought it was polite not to. <laughs> <laughs> and it was nine to nothing. So I was... <laughs> well, thank you. All right. I, I, I think we, we are down to our last 15 minutes, and I think we have time only for the lightning round. So I'm going to ask a question, and if you recognize yourself, as the person I am describing, please raise your hand and say a few words about this fact. Is this confession and avoidance? <laughs> I, I, I think that's up to you. <laughs> All right, ready? First one. What happens if no one raises their hand? <laughs> then then I, will, I will call on you. <laughs> All right, first one is, one of you was an Eagle Scout by the age of 12. Eagle Scout by 12. Justice Breyer. Can you tie a knot? <laughs> Can you tie a knot? Can you tie a knot, Stephen? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I never heard of anybody who was an Eagle Scout at 12. What? Yeah, how, 12? How did it happen? Yeah. How did you do it? And, and I began it, at 8. You began at 8? Yeah, I lied about my age. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. One of you worked on oil rigs in Canada and Louisiana. Canada and Louisiana oil rigs. Justice Kennedy. Right. Uh, my uncle was in the oil business, and um, my, my first job in, in Canada was I had to nail up a, what we call a, a doghouse in the oil field business. A, and I had my new overalls and my gloves, and I nailed the, the 
boards up because the foreman was coming over, and I nailed my glove to the wall. <laughs> I couldn't get it out, so I finally I tore it out, and uh, I said, don't worry, I'll get it out. He said, oh no, you leave that right here. So all summer long, every salesman that came out, they had to see the glove. <laughs> and all. But then I, I got to know the oil fields and uh, uh, worked, on, worked on drilling rigs to help pay my way through college. Interesting, okay. One of you was a member of the United Steelworkers. <laughs> Chief, Chief Justice electrical, Roberts. <clears throat> electrical helper job class six, I think is what it was, which meant you walked around with the uh, electricians and whenever they wanted some fun, they'd tell you to tighten a particular bolt that turned out to be live, like this. <laughs> <laughs> and it just, it just never got old for them. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now this, this, is, this is a very good one. One of you uh, engaged in a mock sword duel during your second year at Harvard Law School and ended up at University Health Services. <laughs> You know, it was a way to pass the time. <laughs> <laughs> the, um, I, by the time we, I did this with, with one of my classmates, um, I, I was also a proctor uh, in, in, um, in, in Harvard Yard, freshman proctor. And so uh, we got uh, the ranking assistant dean of freshmen to referee uh, the, the duel. And uh, uh, probably most of my freshman proctees showed up for it. And everything was going fine except for uh, one problem I, I had with the, the sword. Mine did not have one of those guards that goes over your hand. And my friend's saber came down, uh, uh, you know, against the side of mine and uh, smacked right into the uh, sort of the joint and the flesh there and the thing started bleeding. And um, my, my first reaction was to just, just let it bleed, but my boss, the dean, looked at it and he said, he looked at the saber and he said, you know, the thing is dirty and rusty. He said, it's probably crawling with tetanus. You better go down and, better go down and get a shot. <laughs> so the entire uh, entourage traipsed down to the University Health Services. Uh, and while we were, while we were waiting, um, to, for a doctor to come out, a lot of the freshmen had come, and I, you know, I began to think, you know, I, I've, I've got to be hospitable about this. So we were, the, the UHS in, in those days, maybe still now, was right across the street from, from Elsie's restaurant on the corner of Mount Auburn Street and, uh, what, Holyoke. And Elsie's uh, served a, a great cream cheese and caviar sandwich. <laughs> so I gave some money to one of the freshmen and said, you know, go over and get whatever we had at that point, 12 cream cheese and caviar sandwiches so people can enjoy <laughs> themselves while we're waiting. And, uh, you know, finally a doctor came out and he said, well, how did this happen, sir? And I said, well, I, I was fighting this duel. And I, <laughs> I said... And I think he began to lose professional interest uh, at, at that point. And at just about that moment, the kid arrived with the cream cheese and caviar sandwiches. And that 
ended the patience of the university health services. And they <laughs> told everybody else to get out, uh, and they did give me a tetanus shot, and you know it worked. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Justice Breyer, you have a Justice comment on things happened to him. While, while he, <laughs> honestly, while he was a member, active member of our court, he's walking in the woods somewhere. A rabbit jumped on his back and bit him in the neck. <laughs> That's right. And then, by the way, when he's in his office, he finds a fox that came out of the basement. <laughs> <laughs> We're I don't learning find a lot. I, I... <laughs> we miss you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next question in the lightning round. One of you has raised horses, chickens, and goats. Justice Gorsuch. Uh, Yes, uh, no foxes. <laughs> um, yeah, my daughters are, were, were huge into 4-H, and uh, I learned how to bathe a chicken, which is not something I recommend. <laughs> uh, and raising a goat, I definitely don't recommend. Um, but we, we attended more 4-H events than uh, anyone should in a lifetime. And I loved every second of it. Yeah. And one of uh, your former clerks, I won't identify who, uh, said that your goat thought it was a lap dog. It, it uh, nibbles, nibbles the goat. Um, <laughs> aptly named, um, was an escape artist. He, he would get out of the corral, proceed to eat most of our fruit trees bare, and then work his way in the house and was, thought he was a lap dog. Yes, that is all true and was vaguely housebroken by the end of it, but not quite. <laughs> you don't want to go. <laughs> okay, so now we're almost done with the lightning round. A couple more questions here. One of you was, um, uses contractions only in dissents. Hmm. I did. <laughs> Justice Kagan, would you care to elaborate on that? Um, you know, when you're writing for the court, you should be a little bit formal in my view. But when you're writing for dissent, you can let it go a little bit more. <laughs> <laughs> Letting it go here being equivalent to using contractions. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One of you was caught by the dean of the Harvard Law School at a Red Sox game the day before a tax exam. Red <laughs> It was 1960, the last year Ted Williams was going oh. to play. And uh, I was going back to California, so I wanted to see him. And so I told my uh, study mate, I said, I've got two tickets. I was really worked on them for the Boston Red Sox. He said, well, the tax finals tomorrow, and I said, well, you bring the revenue code, I'll bring the case book. <laughs> and we, we sat down, and I heard this voice saying, you don't bring the revenue code to the baseball game. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was Irwin Griswold. <laughs> and I, he was shocked. I don't know if he thought it was a profanation of the code or of the game. But. <laughs> He would, he would see me like 20 years later in the court said, do you still bring the revenue code to the baseball game? <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right, this is a question that has, for which two of you need to raise your hands. Two of you, two of you have often been confused for each other <laughs> at oral argument and once by an O'Connor clerk. <laughs> <laughs> and we don't you... know why. Uh, the, uh, actually, my, my, it just happens all the time. Uh, and uh, my, my favorite sort of summation of, of the problem we have came, uh, I have to, uh, if I get this wrong, correct me, uh, came at, at one of those lunches that Justice Breyer was having with, with law clerks from other chambers. They would invite us to lunch and so on. And one clerk decided to, to sort of broach this subject and said, uh, said as I understand it, uh, I, I understand that you and Justice Souter are often confused. <laughs> <laughs> And then, then realizing what uh, what he had said, he said, "I mean, you, you get all mixed up." Uh, but one of you has to tell the story about the best thing about serving on the court. About the what? The best thing about serving on the court. Yeah, I think it must be exaggerated. Unless it's, but I, 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 I often I do get asked. No. You mean I'm a member of the court, and people ask. <laughs> No, this was a great response you had, David, to the what? confusion. Oh, yes, it's Jake Works. It's Jake Works. No, you, I you have Jake to tell Wirtz. the story. I told you the story. You told me. No, it's your, it's no, your story. You, you tell it. It happened to you. You, you tell it. I just it. make it up. It's oh, about well, I'll you. tell it. It's right. a true story. <laughs> Somebody tell the story. <laughs> Someone comes up to Justice Souter, <laughs> mistakes him as Justice Breyer, and asks, Justice Breyer, what is the best thing about being on the Supreme Court? And David said, serving with Justice <laughs> That story, by the way, has been called truthy. <laughs> It works. Yeah. All right, last three questions. Mm. One of you, as a Harvard Law student, went to Harvard Square almost every day for 31 flavors. 31 flavors. <laughs> Chief Justice Roberts, would you care to elaborate? It's like the episode of, of uh, episodes of Friends. You like to go someplace where you're known, where they know your name, <laughs> and the Baskin Robbins uh, store, they knew my name. And you would go in and uh, uh, it advertised 31 flavors, but I always had the same thing, so. Yeah, uh, it was a uh, marshmallow sundae with chocolate chip ice cream. Wow. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> All right, the next question. One of you celebrated the end of the first term of service on the Supreme Court by not shaving all summer. <laughs> Justice Gorsuch, how did that work out? <laughs> I went home to Colorado. I hiked 14ers, fished, and did nothing. 
I haven't had a summer off since I was 12. It, it was fantastic. It was, it was, it was wonderful. Um, and uh, I, I, I did grow it out all summer, and then I asked my daughters whether I could be seen on the bench. Uh, and they said, under no circumstances <laughs> whatsoever. And my wife said, oh, they'll start reading into it. What does the beard mean? <laughs> so off it came. All right, final question. One of you was voted by your fellow law clerks to be the clerk most likely to serve on the Supreme Court. <laughs> well, I, I know who must have told you that embarrassing fact because uh, <laughs> Professor Steiker I cannot confirm or deny that. I'm just going to say, Professor Steiker was my co-clerk, and at the end of the year, we voted each other all these, you know, sort of yearbook categories. Professor Steiker's, she was going off to be a public defender, and she was voted the last person to make a million dollars. And this was, uh, it, 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 Mine was, it was definitely better than being voted the first person to be indicted. <laughs> I won't ask who that was. <laughs> Let's give a big round of applause to the justices. Thank you, we had fun. This this way, we're going this way. To those who would tear the world down, we will defeat you. This is our moment. This is our time. To those who seek peace and security, we support you. Yes, we can. And to all those who have wondered if America's beacon still burns as bright, tonight we prove once more that the true strength of our nation comes not from the might of our arms or the scale of our wealth, but from the enduring power of our ideals, democracy, liberty, opportunity, and unyielding hope. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbow. For Stitcher Smart Radio, Potable, and more. Yes, we can.
Public Access America. History in the making. Making history in the making. In the making.